Our message this morning will be taken from Galatians 5, 22 and 23, and Luke 10, 25 through 37. If you're using the um, Bible in your pew, that is, Galatians is found on page 975. Galatians 5, 22 through 23. Listen now to God's holy and inerrant word. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And now Luke 10, 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to him to test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, You go and do likewise. The grass withers. And the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to come before your word this morning. And we pray that you would speak to us this morning by your Spirit in order that we may hear your word and hear it with full confidence that the God who speaks is the same God who speaks and calls everything into being, the same God who, when He walked this earth, uh, spoke and the dead came out of their tombs, the lame were made to walk, the blind made to see. Father, we need to hear Your Word with that kind of power this morning to wake us up, to hear Your voice as we were made to hear Your voice and to respond to your voice in loving obedience. Father, we pray that you would help us this morning uh, as we look at this passage and that you would lift our eyes to see the Lord Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our salvation. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. In children ages 3 to 1st grade, you're dismissed to go to Children's Church if you make your way to the back of the sanctuary. On Sunday mornings here at Grace Community Church, we've been going through Paul's letter to 
the Galatians, and we've slowed down recently so that we can look together in a little bit more detail at what Paul called the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. And so this morning, we're giving particular emphasis uh, to kindness, uh, the kindness that Paul mentioned in that description of the fruit of the Spirit. And when you're reading along in Galatians, and you get to that place, you realize that Paul is using a metaphor that's agricultural, right? Fruit, um, and w- which is a great metaphor because it describes uh, the organic growth of this fruit. And so we've kind of been explaining it like this. We've been saying when the seed of the gospel, when it comes and penetrates the soil of your heart, it grows and it produces a gospel fruit in your life. Um, And it's because the gospel changes us. It's because the gospel comes and gives us a new identity. The gospel sets us free and makes us a new creation. And it's a great metaphor, but this morning as we begin to think about this key to kindness here in this passage from Luke, I want you to think about another metaphor with me. Um, When I uh, graduated uh, or finished graduate school, my wife and I, we moved to Martin, Tennessee, and for five years uh, did campus ministry there uh, at the University of Tennessee at Martin. And when we were living in Martin, we had this little house uh, on one acre of property, and it was one acre cut out from thousands of acres of farmland that surrounded it. And one evening, we had a bunch of people over to our house um, for a bonfire. And, um, and so I stacked all this wood that day into this large, like, teepee-style formation, you know, for the bonfire. And then I got this brilliant idea that I was going to use gasoline as my lighter fluid. And so when everybody got there, I poured a very large amount of gasoline on this TP thing, and then I made a trail of gasoline through my grass so that I could light it from a safe distance. And so I lit that trail, and it, the flame made its way to this wood pile. And when it hit that pile of wood, I had poured so much gasoline on that wood um, that it exploded, right? Uh, and I'm not making this up. <laughs> it exploded, and there was a small but it was still a mushroom cloud in my backyard, and flames shot out everywhere, and pieces of wood went flying everywhere, and it was, it was really pretty cool, um, but it was, also, it was also terrifying, right? Um, you know, when it was all said and done, I mean, several thousands of square feet were scorched, um, and I almost burned my neighbor's farm down that night. Um, very thankful that I didn't do that. Um, and here's what I want to talk to you about this morning. Um, when the kindness of Jesus, when the kindness of Jesus is no longer an abstraction to you, um, when it's no longer just an intellectual concept to you, but when the kindness of Jesus becomes real to you, and what I mean is this, when you realize Jesus' kindness to you personally and individually, it's like touching a flame to gasoline, right? And it, it will explode outward from your life in kindness to others. 
It will mushroom out in kindness to others. You know, the Greek word for kindness, it's, it's actually a pretty rare word in the New Testament. Um, but I agree with the author John Sanderson, who wrote that this parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10 is really one of the clearest examples of kindness in the Bible. Um, and listen, ultimately this morning, I, I really, I'd want to show you and I want you to see the kindness of Jesus. Um, because when you get that, that, that's what will set off an explosion in your life of kindness towards others and toward anyone. Um, but I want us to work our way through this passage in three points. Um, the demanding picture of kindness first, and then the real enemy to kindness in our lives, and then third, the only way to kindness. Okay, so first, let's talk about the demanding picture of kindness here. Jesus, in this passage in Luke chapter 10, He gave this man, this religious lawyer, He gave to him this demanding picture of kindness. When Jesus asked this lawyer to summarize the law, the man in this story, He gave a very good answer, right? Verse 27, "'You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind.'" and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said it was a good answer. He said it was a correct answer. I mean, Jesus himself used that same summary when he was asked about what the greatest commandment was. Um, But I I do want you to see this, that Jesus and this man are at least agreeing about this. The law is all about love, right? The law is about loving God supremely, The law is about loving God with every fiber of your being, heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? It's about loving Him above everything else. And it's also about loving your neighbor. It's about being kind to your neighbor. It's about meeting your neighbor's needs and moving towards those needs with the same urgency and the same desire and the same passion and the same energy with which you move towards your own needs in your life. Loving your neighbor the same way you love yourself. Moving out towards your neighbor in loving kindness. Now, we're going to come back in a a moment to this question about who this man's neighbor was, but right now, I want you to see how this parable gave this man this demanding picture of kindness. Um, I mean, that's the re- if you think about it, that's the real genius of parables and of stories, right? A story comes along and it forces you to use your imagination, um, it, it, to imagine this scene that Jesus described, to start to form in your own mind a real picture of kindness. And so we need to briefly pay attention to some of these features. Um, Jesus, he set his story on this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, uh, which was a famous road. Um, and it was famous in particular because it was such a dangerous road to travel. In fact, there was a stretch of this road that was called the Pass of Blood. Um, because this is where thieves would lie in wait and they would attack unsuspecting travelers. And this Jewish man in this story, he fell prey to one of those attacks. And if you're interested in why he's a Jewish man, even though it doesn't say that in the text, Jesus was using a particular story form here that demanded that uh, this man be understood as a Jewish man. Ask me later, and I'll tell you more about that if you want. Um, Anyway, this man Jesus is describing, this Jewish man, he was attacked. Um, 
and he was beaten, and he was stripped of his clothes, and he was robbed, and he was left half dead in the middle of this road. Um, and then the, the very people in this story who should have been moving towards this man in kindness, uh, a Levite and a priest, Jesus says they just pass by on the other side. Um, and, and listen, the reason these are the people who should have shown him mercy is not, not because they were religious or because they were ministers, but really because of the kind of ministers they were. I mean, these were the people who were responsible for the mercy ministry in Israel. These are the people who were responsible for caring for the needs of hurting people, and they passed by this man. And a lot of people think, if you read the scholars, they think that, you know, maybe they didn't stop because they were afraid that if they came up to this man and they touched him and he was, in fact, dead, they would become ceremonially unclean. Um, and that's an interesting thought. I, th- I think it might be a little bit more simple than that, um, a little bit more uh, co- common sense was involved, I think, because I can think of one very, very good reason not to stop and help this man. Um, this man was in a dangerous stretch of the road, and he was not dead yet. Um, and that would mean, that would indicate to me that the people who did this to him, they're probably still nearby. And they're probably watching and waiting for someone stupid enough to stop and help this guy so that they can rob him too. Um, and so listen, they avoided this man. They avoided the risk of getting involved in this situation. But then this Samaritan came by in verse 33, and he took pity on him. He had compassion on him when he saw him lying in the road. Of all people, of all people, I mean, Jews and Samaritans, they hated each other. But this Samaritan didn't avoid him. And he got involved with this Jewish man, and he applied first aid, and he stopped even when it meant very possibly risking his own life. He put this man on his own donkey, right? And he took him to an inn, and he gave this innkeeper two denarii to care for him and this man's needs. And some scholars will tell you that this amount of money was enough to provide for an entire month's stay at the end. But even beyond that, he promised to come back. He was going to make a follow-up visit. Um, and, and when he came, he would, he came and he said, I, I'll, pro- I promise I'll pay back everything. I'll reimburse you for any expenses. I mean, here's what Jesus was doing in this story. He was exploding the scope of kindness in this demanding picture. Why of all people did it have to be a Samaritan who stopped and helped? I mean, these men were natural born enemies. They weren't alike. They didn't see the world the same way. They didn't approach religion in the same way. They had nothing in common. Then take a look at verse 36. Jesus asked the man after this story, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And look at this. Look, he couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. Right? Just a teeth grinding, just acquiescence. Fine the one who had mercy on him. But he can't even say Samaritan. But see, it had to be a Samaritan because Jesus was exploding the scope of kindness in this story with this picture because Jesus was saying, your neighbor is absolutely anyone who is in need. 
no matter who they are. And look at this demanding picture to see the lengths that this kindness goes, right? It assumes real life-threatening risk. It's unbelievably costly, both materially and personally. He cared for every need of this half-dead man. He went to meet his neighbor's needs with the same energy, desire, passion, and urgency with which he would have met his own. Now, before we move on to the next point, I have a question that I want you to think about. Why do you think Jesus told this man in verse 28, do this and you will live? Do you think Jesus was saying, you know, you can be loving and kind like this if you try hard enough? Or do you think he's saying, you know, if you have enough discipline, you can become kind like this? Or or, or maybe he's saying, if you get enough how-to directions on social work, you'll be able to do something like this. I don't think that's what Jesus was saying. I mean, I think Jesus was saying, I want you to look at this picture of demanding kindness to a neighbor. And he's saying, I want you to really think about what it would mean to actually do this. And then I want you to realize how far short you fall of this picture. I mean, this is definitely one of Jesus' most famous parables that he ever told, right? And not just in the church, certainly outside of the church. People know this story, right? This story is an example of a great ethic, right? And lots of people appeal to this. And, you know, I was thinking about that this week and how many of my non-Christian friends know this story, right, and love this story. And I think it's because there's something in this story that just resonates so deeply with our humanity. Because we look at this picture, and when we really see it, we, we begin to think this. This is how life should be. Right? That's what we were meant to be. That's how we were meant to be treated by others. And that's how we were meant to treat others. But like this man, Jesus wants you to look at this picture. And he wants you to realize, though this is what we should be, we have all fallen far short of this. And you need to understand this, that we cannot... And we will not become loving people until we first realize that we aren't loving people. And we won't begin moving out towards others in kindness until we realize how unkind we really are to one another. You know, little kids are notorious for trying to assert their independence as they grow up um, by trying to do things themselves. You know, they say, I want to do it by myself, right? Um, And a child wants to tie his shoes for the first time by himself or learn how to ride her new bike for the first time by herself. And as a parent, we at first, when we hear that, we might want to intervene and stop the catastrophe or the frustration that's about to occur and say something like, no, 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 I need to help you. I want to help you. Um, But if they keep pushing, sometimes we just let them go so that we can say, I told you so later. Um, And, um, you know, but here's what I'm saying. In order to learn how to ride a bike or tie their shoes or anything else, a child first has to admit something. He or she has to admit that they don't know how to ride a bike, that they don't know how to tie their shoes. It's not a perfect illustration, but listen, Jesus wanted this man crushed beneath this demanding picture of kindness. 
He wanted the reality of his unkindness to become clear to him. That this is what we should be. This is what we were meant to be. We should be moving out, exploding outwards in kindness to anyone in need. Right? We were meant to explode outward in, in the expense we're willing to pay to care for others. We were meant to be exploding outward in the risk that we're willing to take for others. But listen, you can't and you won't become kind until the demand of this kindness crushes you, until you begin to see that you don't meet your neighbor's needs with the same urgency, desire, and passion that you meet your own needs. Jesus wants honesty from us. He wants honesty from you. You don't come close to this demanding picture of kindness. And until we can admit that, we can't become kind. Now, second, I want us to move on and talk about the real enemy to kindness because what I, I want us to ask this question. What is it that really does get in the way of our being kind towards others? Uh, why aren't we what we were meant to be? Um, might be another way to put the question. Because I really want to dig beneath this to see the reason we are so unkind towards others. So what do you, what do you think? You know, maybe it's a, you think maybe it's a lack of understanding or a lack of relatable experience in life to, in order to be able to have empathy with others, um, or a lack of certain communication or social work skills that need to be developed. Here's what I think. I think this story is showing us that the enemy to kindness in this man's life and in your life and in my life is very simply self-righteousness. Verse 29, but he desiring to justify himself, right? What's the bar I have to clear? What's the requirement that I have to meet to prove that I'm enough, to prove that I'm worthy, to prove that I'm acceptable and valuable? You know what's interesting? When the Apostle Paul wrote about the fruit of the Spirit to the Galatians, um, he was writing to a group of people who were trying to justify themselves by works of the law. That's what the whole book of Galatians is about, a group of people wanting to justify themselves by the works of the law. And unsurprisingly, some of you might remember that 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 self-justifying nature of man very often manifests itself in racism. Jews stopped eating with Gentiles in Galatians. See, it was fueling an animosity and a hatred as thick as the hatred between Jews and Samaritans. Here's what Paul was identifying in the Galatians and what we're seeing in this man who was desiring to justify himself in Luke chapter 10. Human beings are deeply insecure. We are. We know that we're broken. And we might try to avoid that fact and ignore that fact, but we know we're not what we were meant to be. And, and because of that, we're always trying to justify ourselves. We're always trying to prove that we do matter, that we are lovable, that we are valuable, that we're enough. Ernest Becker was a cultural anthropologist, and a couple months ago I mentioned him uh, in our series on Galatians, but you know, cultural anthropology, right, it's the study of humanity, but, but more particularly it's the study of cultural variations of humanity, uh, both past and present. And he wrote this book in 1974 called The Denial of Death, and he was not a Christian, 
right? He was just an observer of humanity. Um, And in that work, he argued that in every culture, religious or irreligious, he saw a common denominator in humanity. He saw that all human beings engaged themselves in what he called, his term, salvation strategies. He was saying that everyone is trying to justify their existence. We're trying to prove that we matter and that we have value and and that we're acceptable. And he argued that this is what fundamentally drives all human conflict, all wars, all bigotry, all racism. And listen, what I'm saying is when we try to justify ourselves, that is the recipe for self-righteousness. And that is the enemy of kindness in our lives. Jew and Gentile, Jew and Samaritan, what happens when your race or your culture is what gives you your value and your significance? What happens when when that happens? Then everyone of a different race or a different culture is beneath you and has less value than you and is not worth as much and so on. And you can only really be kind to people who are like you. You can't be kind to anyone in need, which is Jesus' point of the parable. Can you see what's happening in verse 29 when this man, desiring to justify himself, asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Right? He was trying to narrow and limit the demands of kindness. He was trying to make the demand of kindness in his life manageable. He, he was looking for the minimum requirement, right? He was grasping for a salvation strategy, something he could do to assure himself that he was enough and that he was one of the good guys, And I'm asking you now, in what ways are you justifying yourself? In what ways are we becoming self-righteous? This man happened to ask Jesus who his neighbor was. But if we're not asking who, then we're asking something else. We're asking when, or we're asking what, or we're asking how, or how much. We're all trying to narrow and limit the demands of kindness here because we're trying to justify ourselves. Earlier this year, I watched the Golden Globe Awards, and, um, and one of the presenters this past year was uh, Jim Carrey, and as usually usual, Jim Carrey um, was being very funny, uh, right? Um, and when he, if you saw this, when he came out to the stage and the microphone came up and he walked up to the microphone, <clears throat> and this is the first thing he said. He said, I am two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. Um, and, um, and then he said, you know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. He said, I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey going to get some much-needed shut-eye. Um, and the audience started picking up on his humor, right? And they're, they're starting to chuckle along with his sarcasm. And then he said, and when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir, he said. He said, I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. Um, And at this point, he had everyone with him, right? And they're all laughing, and then he went for the jugular, and this is what he said. He said, because then I would be enough, right? It would finally be true, and I could stop this, this terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. And then he listed the people nominated uh, for the category, right? Which I'm sure made them feel great. Um, you know, and see, the genius of comedy, it, it works very much like the genius of parable and story. Because it pulls you along 
and it engages your imagination, and it disarms you right before it sets you up for the punchline and exposes truth to you from a different perspective. Look, Jim Carrey, he was in a room of people dressed and decorated in thousands of dollars, right? And they were all hoping for some validation, some recognition of their work, hoping for acceptance and approval, right? Into the rarefied air of being a Golden Globe winner, hoping to be justified by their work. This is what gives me meaning and purpose and life. See, we may not be asking who, but the default mode of our heart is to search for something to justify ourselves, whether that be our career or whether that be um, the way we parent our children, whether that be uh, gaining the approval of our peers or whatever. Sometimes it manifests itself in racism, but very often it manifests itself into being a people pleaser, into being a workaholic, and on and on we could go, right? Because we're trying to justify ourselves. And that is the enemy to kindness. It cuts us off from others. Okay, finally then, I want us to talk about this last point uh, pretty briefly. The only way to kindness. This is one we're going to be brief here, but I do want you to dig a little bit deeper into this parable. Because on the surface, when you read this parable, I think it appears to be simply an excellent example of kindness, right? And, And it is that. It is a good example of what kindness looks like. Um, but it's more than that. And I want you to listen to what a man named Douglas Milne wrote about this passage. He wrote, At a still deeper level, the Samaritan's love is a mirror of Christ's love for us in taking the dangerous and lonely road into the far country of this wicked and violent world. He chose to serve our needs at an infinite cost to himself through his own serving and suffering culminating in the cross. Ultimately, Jesus is the Good Samaritan who loved us with a neighbor's love and by his overcoming has set us free to love in return. See, if you only hear this story, this parable, as an example, do you know what you'll do with that? (laughs) You'll take it and you'll try to justify yourself with it is what you'll do, and that will never work. I mean, think about it like this. Who was Jesus speaking with? He was speaking with a Jewish lawyer. So who do you think Jesus wants this Jewish lawyer to identify with in this parable? Not the Samaritan. He wants this man to identify with the Jewish man who is left half dead in the road. That helpless Jewish man, hopeless and helpless, unable to save himself. In order to live, he has to be shown grace and mercy. His only hope is that someone would look upon him and have compassion on him and take pity on him. The man, see, the man had asked Jesus this question in verse 29, and who is my neighbor? And then Jesus very subtly changed the question in verse 36. Because I think what Jesus was doing when he asked the question was he was doing something like this. He was saying to this man, and who was the neighbor to you? Right? Jesus wanted this man, and he wants you to see that he is the ultimate good Samaritan. He came and he walked the dangerous, lonely, violent road for you. But so great was his love for you that unlike the Samaritan in this story, Jesus didn't just risk his life for you. He gave his life for you. To be a good neighbor, you, have, you, you, you need a good neighbor. 
right? To be loving, you need to be loved, to be kind. You need to receive his kindness. And only when you do that, and only when that becomes real to you, will your life begin to explode outward in kindness towards others. Only in knowing that you aren't kind, but he came so that in him you could be assured that you are valuable, that you are accepted, that you are loved, and that you are enough in him. Only in knowing that will you be able to conquer the self-righteousness in your life. The need to justify yourself is gone when you get that. When the only one who really matters in this world loves you completely and thoroughly. Listen, it's interesting, I think, that Jesus uses kindness as a test to know whether or not the flame of the gospel has reached your heart. Matthew chapter 25 is another place that Jesus does this. Uh, go, go read it this afternoon if you want. But there Jesus says on the judgment day um, that there will be a very clear separation of people, sheep and goats. And to those who fed the hungry, and to those who gave drink to the thirsty, and to those who invited the strangers in, and, and visited the prisoners, and clothed the naked, and so on, Jesus says that he will say, come and take your inheritance. And then Jesus says, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And of course, there will be others who didn't feed the hungry and didn't clothe the naked and didn't invite the strangers in and so on. And Jesus says that he's going to send them into the cursed eternal fire. Because when they didn't do it to one of the least of these, he says, they didn't do it to me. Now listen, It's easy to be kind to those who have money and things and status because there's always a payoff, right, when you're kind to those kind of people. The favor can be returned. It improves your own status and improves what so-and-so thinks of you and it gains you friendship and so on. But why does Jesus want us to be kind to the helpless half-dead man, the naked man, the prisoner, the dying. Why? Because loving them is most similar to what it meant for Jesus to love you. The naked, starving, imprisoned, and thirsty, they can never pay you back. To serve them and to love them and to be kind to them, that is to be serving your neighbor out of true kindness. And so let me end with a very small bit of application I mentioned this in our uh, announcements that we've been working with Cordova Elementary School this past year, and we've been sending people there every week to help little little children learn how to read, right, and um, little kindergartners. And if you know Cordova Elementary School, you know that the kids that make up that school, many of them uh, are very, very poor. And um, we're taking a break right now because summer's here. There's going to be another opportunity for you to get involved in serving at Cordova Elementary School. And let me tell you this. If If you do that, if you serve those children and those teachers, it will not improve your status. You won't get that hour back in your schedule that week, right? You will have to sacrifice You'll have to use your precious lunch hour to do it or something like that. And those kids, they will probably not say thank you. Listen, sign up and do it. (laughs) Because you need to do it for Jesus. 
Because he is calling his people, his people who have experienced his kindness, to move out towards others in radical kindness, to care for those needs, their needs, with the same urgency and passion and desire that we care for our own. And listen, just another, on your way out, take a right. <laughs> There's the bulletin board that has the Vacation Bible School sign up. We want these kids to come and be a part of it. Serve them. Serve them because of Jesus. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the time that we've had together in your word this morning. We thank you that you are a God who speaks, um, that you are a God who does not leave, leave us without a light for our path. And uh, Father, we thank you that this morning we have had an opportunity to remember and be reminded of Jesus' love and kindness to us. And Father, we pray that, that, that His kindness would become so real to us that it would indeed set off an explosion in our lives and that it would move us out in kindness to others. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.